internet, why is it do you think we can't have babies anymore? My name is Matthew Kroll. And I'm Shahir Dowd, and I haven't got the faintest idea, but this stork is quite tasty, isn't he? <laughs> High five for that. Yeah. Yeah, we did it. Perfect comedic timing. And this is the only podcast about movies. Special edition. Shahir, why is it so special? Well, it's special because you and I are here. No, wait, that happens every time. It's That's special true. because we're talking about movies. No, no, that we do that mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. It's special because this is a user requested. Film. What? We're taking requests now? Yeah, I know. I want to request a new Ninja Turtles movie. Where do I have to? Do, where do I have to do to request that? Uh, I have veto power, just like the U.S. and the U.N. Oh, so, fuck. Uh, <laughs> but unlike the U.S. and the U.N., Dave Rowe emailed us in with a movie suggestion. Uh, he said, "What's up, guys? Heard you call for suggestions on the recent episode, so I wanted to contribute. My suggestion is." Children of Men, as you probably guessed by the title and because of our bad jokes. Uh, love the podcast. Keep it up. Thank you, Dave Rowe. This is a special episode going not just to you, but thank you very much for the suggestion. But to all it's a great suggestion, yeah. Um, I was so excited when I saw this. I'm glad you didn't recommend something like Neighbors 2. Yeah, no, I'm psyched too. And guys, if you want us to do other movies... Please let us know. We're going to try to do, depending on how many requests we get, we're going to try to do these whenever we can, like as a special sort of midweek edition to talk about films that have come out. Or, or even if you have something in the theater that you want us to go check out, let us know that too. Send us an email. Write, uh, give us a review on iTunes. Throw it in there. Um, you can I, post it on Facebook. Like just give us, give us movies you'd like to hear us talk slash argue about and uh, <laughs> we'll do it up. I, I I reserve the right to have veto power depending on what the movie is. Nah. So so nah. Yeah, I'm telling you, you leave. Wait, you are, leave, you, are you gonna let the general public give us any movie? You leave some love somewhere in one of those little social social little internet. So things? if someone says they want us to watch a Serbian film, that film I talked about weeks ago with the absolutely most disgusting. If thing they on. say it lovingly in a five star review, I'll do it. So here's my point. Actually, this is a good point. If you want us to see, to see a film, tell us why. Without, tell us why you want us to do it. Yeah, like why do you think <laughs> we'd be in interested in doing it but we, yeah you didn't need to say much about children of men right i mean we we wanted to we this is a movie that's super fun to talk about yeah but actually you were talking about some sad shit about it too. yeah it's i mean look i've seen this movie uh this will seeing it for the for this podcast was the fourth time i've seen it around um but i've seen it three times and i've always wanted to talk about it uh, unfortunately one thing i didn't realize is that this is a movie that cost 70 million dollars to make and only made 35 million so it seems to be almost a lost movie i think well yeah no 100 percent. It, it's sad that it did not because this is a film you were even saying this before it's like a, a, it's a master class in filmmaking oh, and i i agree 100 percent. like i i think in filmmaking circles this is a much vaulted film this yes. is a film that that directors cinematographers editors actors all talk about 100 um screenwriters as well and, and but but i feel like outside of those circles this is not necessarily a film that people talk about. I mean, I, I the film that I compare, I, I think about in relation to this film is Minority Report, which admittedly came out four years before Children of Men. This is way more powerful and better, I think, than Minority Report is. I, if in my opinion, uh, that's a that's a question to have on a podcast forum. I would say, if only we knew of one. <laughs> um, but uh, but Minority Report was a financial success. It's even spawned a TV show, right? Uh, recently, is but, that show doing well? Uh, I don't. No, I've heard not, but okay. uh, but I but I, admittedly I have not seen it. So sadly, the badge of it even spawned a TV show is not something one can wear with full pride anymore. But Minority Report, you know, domestic, you know, they're making made, a Lethal Weapon show. That's true. That's true. But they're not making a Children of Men show, which I think they could. Um, and Minority Report made uh, in the you know like three hundred million dollars back. So it, sure. it made. I don't think I, I don't think they could make a Children of Men show. I think this film and why it works so well in the medium that oh, it currently is. Don't get me wrong. I think extending franchises like this without a really good reason, yeah. is is a bad. If thing. you could tell an interesting story in this world, I, but sure. I think this is a fascinating world. But this what this this sort of ties up a lot of sort of things in the world, even to get like enough for me. Like I don't need the continuation of the story or whatnot. I'm not suggesting. We we need more children. Okay. To make. Yeah, but, yeah. but but I but I am, and maybe it's in the indictment as well. Is it that if, if the movie had made, uh, you know, more than its budget back, then we would be oh, seeing, we'd be in season six. Yeah, we'd be seeing a lot more children to men. But we were not. And so, uh, Matt, before I get into mine, because my my history with this film is slightly long, and I'm going to try and condense it. But but just your general history with this film, like what, what I you, went to see it in the theater. I yeah. enjoyed the crap out of it. And to be honest, before this time being the second time that I had watched it. 
uh, that I remembered really liking it and really sort of being viscerally attached to it. But at the same time, the 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 scene is what got me into oh, it. That, we, the, the, we, what, I mean, we'll talk about it, but the scene near the end of the film that's all one take or it seems oh, one take is so good and i remember it's one of those things that you're so engrossed with what's going on you don't even realize it's one take until about halfway through you're like wait did they did they find the did they got the camera like, yeah what? yeah uh and that's what's always stuck with me but upon watching this again uh damn man like i i haven't had this sort of world building sort of feeling out of a straight up narrative i think uh since the last of us honestly on ps4 right. uh which sadly they're making a movie of there's no reason for it yeah um but it it paints a world sort of very similar and very bleak and very complete way and i feel like i feel like last of us borrowed a shit ton yeah. from children of men i you know it's funny is when i watched this the first time i felt like this film bo- borrowed from gears of war like it got aesthetically, kind I mean, of, yeah. but, but I, but I don't think this is a film that's pandering to like be no. a video game at all. It's, no. it's got so much on its mind. I, I mean, any other general opinion? Uh, no, I love it. Um, I forgot how much I loved it till I watched it again. Um, it, so thank you, Debra. Yeah. Thank you very much, man. I do. Appre- I love it when people are like, Hey, remember that awesome thing? And I was like, yeah, I remember it's awesome. They're like, you probably don't remember how awesome it is. Yeah. And I was like, sure I do. And then I was like, no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, no, I really enjoyed it. I think God, from a storytelling perspective, and I mean this from both the scripted side and the world that tells the story of sort of what's happening in a larger picture, uh, it just it just gets everything across to you so clearly. And like the world itself, you don't see a whole lot of it, but you get it like, you know, what's fucking going on. And it's a horrible place that I particularly wouldn't want to live in, but I love hearing stories in. Uh, yeah. What about you? What's your long convoluted? What happened? What was it in New Zealand? <laughs> Who hurt you in New Zealand? <laughs> Who hurt you? Don't tell me. I'll get them. No, um, I didn't say that. I was just, I no, was giving, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be, I was anymore. giving out high fives today. Sheer. I, uh, I, I was just so excited to see this film because of this director's previous film. Uh, what was it? Yitu Mama Tambien. Oh I, shit. That's right. This is Alfonso Coron. And I, I am, uh, he got I, that Potter money. Yeah, well, I I just I honestly think Alfonso Cuarón is one of the great living filmmakers today, um, and I think Yitumama Tambian is just that is a film that legitimately, I think I can. It, it was always in my top five. I'm pretty sure it's in my top three films of all time. Wow! Um, I lift that film. That film spoke to me so. It it was like. Uh, the film was speaking directly to me, Ooh. and and every emo- every emotion you could experience in that film, you can I, I I had. Now I there was an interesting thing because that film was um, for a short period banned in New Zealand because of the sexual content. Uh, that's a long convoluted history. We'll you people are fucked up. But it was temporarily <laughs> because of one weird Christian group that likes to take it upon themselves to ban oh, wow. you know to ban anything with sexual content. They hadn't even watched the movie. And so, oh, that's always good. Oh yeah, it's brilliant. Uh, I I wrote articles about it back in the day. So I went to see it because I was like, oh, I want to see this. Uh, you know, like this film that they're so complaining about. Um, I had seen Great Expectations. I hadn't seen A Little Princess. Um, Solo con tu pareja, which is a film about a man who has AIDS and has to tell uh, his former lovers, uh, is a film I haven't seen yet. It's on my Netflix queue. So I went to see Yutumama Tambien. Was had my mind absolutely blown. Uh, I thought this director, this storytelling was just the second coming of uh, of a great visionary talent. I can totally see that. I think it's uh, interesting sort of from a, from a case study standpoint of like, oh, this is the film that you said spoke like directly to you. Yeah, yeah. And it, uh, guess which film spoke directly to me. I don't know if you'll get it. Well, I know um, uh, Escape from New York. Yeah, yeah, but in a different way. Like, And then Youth. No, no. I'm, the, the the film I'm thinking of is actually Scott Pilgrim versus the World. I can totally see that. Yeah, and it's so interesting. I just, I mean, because I feel like, again, whether you like or hate either yeah. of these films, like the 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 type of feeling that we got from them yeah. is very similar. And it's and and I think the thing that's interesting about making that distinction with it's the film that speaks to you is I can understand if if you could pick apart Yutumama Tambian for any reason and you could, you know, like, and I can understand, I mean, you, you can pick apart yeah. Scott yeah. Pilgrim, but it's this film that like is so personal to you yeah. that it's, that it's difficult to pick apart. But anyway, yeah. um, and then I, I had a thing with Harry Potter. I was not a big fan. I wasn't a big fan. Yeah. And I, and I, I, what I, the problem I had with Harry Potter had to do the same problem that I have with the Marvel world, which is that I feel they weren't making films or they were making episodes and they weren't interesting episodes. That wasn't the problem for me. The problem for me with Harry Potter is that I can't stand magic that rhymes. 
<laughs> I can't. I can't. I can't do it. Papalus. And and the fact I tried. Oh, so ooh, story time in college. Real quick tangent. I uh, made a bet with a girlfriend that I had at the time where she would play the first disc of Final Fantasy VII if I read the first Harry Potter book. Right. I finished the Harry Potter book and I was like, oh, this is yeah, not yeah. for me. Like I, yeah. I just didn't get into it. I can understand why people did. It just wasn't for me, yeah. but a small personal victory. She played through all the discs of final fantasy seven and loved it. Yep. Anyway. Uh, uh, but, but then, so he made, I, what I, I was, the thing about him was, was that he, he then went and made Harry Potter and the prisoner of Azkaban, which is far and away. I think I still think the best one, is right? far and away the best one because it's the most, that's the one that feels most like a film that's not trying to sit up other films. And I, it's, I watched them all in one day during a flood. Oh God, what is wrong with you? I heard, but myself. that film is the one that would have stood out to you, right? Yeah, no, that was my favorite one. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. And I think the thing that's interesting is he set up the visual language for Harry Potter for the remainder of the series. Yes. And he told, he picked a story that was self-contained and really compelling. It had that beautiful time traveling metaphor that was just really wonderfully done. Yeah. So he's the, so I was like, this is the kind of director that should be doing Marvel movies. If they're going to be a hundred percent, he should be doing, but I'm glad he isn't. You know, I'm, I was, I'm, I'm so glad. But you know not. what was funny? You bring that up. I was thinking about it. I was like, what Marvel movie would I want to see him do? Yeah. And there's an Avengers run, which will probably happen sometime in phase four. No one's announced anything, of course, yeah. but it's called Dark Rain. Yeah. Where uh, Norman Osborn, the Green Goblin, it through things happen, basically take over the Avengers and it gets government funded by the government thinking he's the person to be in charge. And it's just sort of dark. Uh, I hate using the word gritty. It's not even gritty. It's just like. It would be a perfect feel the way Children of Men feels if they could do a Dark Rain film I mean, look, like I, that. Holy shit. I would love if every Marvel movie felt this crafted and well thought out and interesting and the world was built so mm -hmm. well. I, mm -hmm. I just don't find that's the case. But but it, but so I was like, uh, you know, once I saw what he did on a small scale with Yutumama Tambian and then what he did on a larger scale with like one of the biggest franchises in the world at the time, I was like, oh my God, this dude can do no wrong. And then Children of Men came out and I saw it in the theater. And here's the thing. I thought it was a masterclass in filmmaking. It was, I, I, I still... Again, in filmmaking circles, we still talk about this movie. I'm and sure. his script writing, too. I do want to point that out. The script is phenomenal. I, it was, my experience of watching it, though, was that I felt that it was a film. It it's one of those rare cases where a film, the filmmaking, in my mind, was better than the story that was being told. And I felt like I felt, I felt a little dissatisfied when I left the film because I felt like this was such an an amazing demonstration of craft and storytelling that I was just a little bit disappointed by the simplicity of the actual story. Now, because given, given the emotional complexity of a film like Itumama Tambian. Now, I have, and it's weird because, so I'm going to talk, I'm going to jump around a little bit before I get to Children of Men. And, and uh, so the thing is, is that Itumama Tambian Children of Men and Gravity are a triptych of films with uh, Alfonso Cuaron with his um, cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubuiski, who we talked about, who was the cinematographer of The Revenant. Ah. He is the cinematographer for uh, Alejandro Gonzalez in Aritu. Um, so he's, he's, I love your accent, by the way, yeah, I'm really it trying it out there. Uh, he's the three times, he's the only cinematographer to win the Oscar three times in a row. Uh, amazing, amazing cinematographer. And it's hat trick. Hat trick. And, and what, what is interesting about these three films, Yutumama Tamiya and Children of Men Gravity, is that they are what, what Alfonso Caron is amazing at is he is a technic, he is a technician of the highest order, but he's also a technician with something to say. His stories have heart. He, they have, they, he has a lot on his mind politically. Now, I think Yutumama Tambian to me is the best marriage of his political and uh, political worldview and his technical prowess. Children of Men is an excellent example of that, but I feel like his storytelling, I felt like the story didn't quite live up to what the filmmaking technical ability. And then I think Gravity, his, uh, the last film he's made, um, is an excellent example of technical filmmaking. And it is a very good story. Now, when I say storytelling, I, I, I have problems with the story, but I think, again, I would I would much rather take um, Children's of Men's story, which I have some just some slights with, 
over other people's masterworks. Like, you know, so it's, it's kind of like I'm nitpicking here. Now, the other interesting thing I just want to point out is it is a film I've watched four times over now. Sure. And every time I watch it, the richer the experience gets. Whereas every time I've watched Gravity, the the more I marvel at its technical prowess, but the less I get out of it from a storytelling point of view. I'm not a fan of, of Gravity. I, I really like Gravity. It's, it, it, it really does work, but it's not a film with a lot of... Um, it feels like not a lot of meat on it beyond the initial experience, but that's what's also kind of great about it. Yeah. So... That's my long convoluted history with Children of Men. I just want to say something about you sort of said the story is weaker. And I know you're nitpicking yeah. in the filmmaking itself. I kind of, I, I disagree only because like, again, I, these are my analogies. So I use them. X-Men, we did a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah. The, the way that I was so enthralled with sort of Magneto's story, right. if they had stuck with Magneto throughout the entire happenings of X-Men Apocalypse, and watched him the way they watched Clive Owen's character in Children of Men, that would have been a far stronger film. I've now, uh, yeah, now, but this but, is what but, I've been saying no, about the but do you know Marvel what I mean? But this is what, this is what I'm movies, saying. Yeah. Um, the, I really appreciate when characters, and especially non superpowered or non sci fi or sort of human beings, right? Yeah. Speak to each other. Like, with like human beings, oh my god! With hold yes. on, with with weight yeah. and with history, like you mm. knew him and Julian, Clive Owen and Julian Moore, and and um, Jasper and, by Michael and yeah. Michael Caine. God bless Michael Caine. Um, He's it so all, good in this it movie. All feels mm. like they've known each other, and it's real, and they're in this world that has changed them certain ways. All of them, and they have a history, and the way. Not, look, not. Not saying like every word is poetry, but not every word in a conversation is poetry, uh, as illustrated on the only podcast about movies. Yeah. And and it just feels like you're looking at a glimpse of real people in a in a fascinating world that he's created. It's amazing. Uh, and I do. Th and so from I think the dialogue is wonderful, but I also really appreciate the fact that, yes, the story is not the most complex thing, but even upon second viewing, I didn't remember a couple of the twists. And I think that's a credit to the film because it paints them so well that I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. And it's still as satisfying the second time, granted, years later. So I, I like that it is. For the most part, a simpler story about a man, uh, spoiler alert, mm -hmm. trying to get the last pregnant woman to a group of scientists on a boat. I think, and, and you know, again, it's so nitpicky because it's, given the state of big budget science fiction films today, this is still such a masterwork. And, um, and, and the thing is, you know, like, every t now that I know the story more, I think my initial feeling was was that he'd built up such a rich world that I was I was left a little dissatisfied by the actual story that was being told in there and there was so I much wasn't. there was so much going on and then I'm talking about the first time I saw this movie I know, I know. in a theater um and I was like so overwhelmed by how this world worked and be put together and then but it, I, I I was like less satisfied with the actual story now having watched it three more you know three more times since then and knowing what the what the actual story is I can I can um, poke into the background a little bit more and ascertain information that I need. Sure. Um, so I feel like it's one of these films that every time you revisit it, it kind of gets richer and richer. I can see that, yeah. Um, unlike, uh, so, uh, but just the opposite of that is Yitu Mama Tambien, which is like the first time I watched that, that movie was so emotionally complex for me and so rich that I, I, found, I found the first viewing to be so completely satisfying. And then every viewing from there has gotten better and better. Whereas this one, I found the first viewing like, oh, it's amazing, May, but I forget what you're saying. Um, so, and to your point, the you know, like in and so, so when I've mentioned big budget science fiction films or you know, like action movies these days, uh, one of the things is 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 that I think about is uh, the Batman trilogy, the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, which sure. which Michael Caine is a part of. And look, I <laughs> is think, the secret for you, Michael Caine. No, well, here's the thing: is I because it's a secret for me. Really, it's not a secret. <laughs> it's not a secret. Everyone knows your secret. You are really our Batman. What? But, <laughs> wait, whoa, 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 whoa. No, I'm not. <laughs> Why would you say that? Light is swear to me. Um, <laughs> but um, the thing that always annoyed me about the Christopher Nolan Batmans, as much as I think that they were ambitious in scope, is, is exactly the thing you just said, which is I never felt like there were two human beings talking to each other like two human beings in that film. I Except felt, when Michael Caine talked. 
even Michael Caine. I, felt I thought like, his speeches were human. I think he was good. At, he's he's such a good actor that he managed to translate that dialogue into human being into into speak. But I I felt like in Batman, everyone talked in platitudes and everyone talked in ideology. Nobody talked like real people. Whereas in this film, the the piece of dialogue that we mentioned at the beginning, where Michael Caine is trying to explain uh, the human project as a joke, the the it feels like two real people like. Um, Clive Owen interrupts him halfway through and, you know, and he's like being smoking pot and he goes, Jesus, that was strong. And, you know, and, and he's trying to, he's trying to get this joke out and it doesn't get out. And he's like, Jesus, man, I'm just trying to tell a joke. He's it like, just, the joke's not, he's like, I'm trying to tell a joke. He's like, oh, keep going. He's like, no, I don't want to. And like, it goes like back and forth. It's the back so, it's it very... feels like two people. And I was like, why don't films feel like this anymore? I know. Why, why don't films? It's poor writing. I mean, outside of this, it's, the reason is poor writing. And people, people think that it, it's so hard to write something and have it acted out in a compelling way like this. Like yeah. not a lot of people can do it. And, and and they just found it in this writing and this director and Clive Owen and, and Michael Caine. And I, I mean, imagine, imagine lesser actors or lesser writers trying to do this and you don't have to imagine it because it's all over the fucking screen. Like yeah. it's there and not everyone can pull it off. And that just adds to the different, like another uh, piece of this tapestry of special that is children of men. And, and, and I, you know, there's so much little detail in this film Oh the, yeah, it's, the world. The world. I'm sorry. The the world that actually uh, I got really excited when I watched it. Uh, when the when this movie starts out uh, and Clive Owen is going to get a cup of coffee and he's walking down the streets of London in 2027. Is it? Yeah, 2027. So it's just the near future, right? And uh, on the news, it said Baby Diego, who is 18 years old, the youngest person on the planet, uh, is dead. And by the way, if we haven't mentioned this yet and you haven't seen it, just in case, the premise of this movie is they're living in a world where human beings are no longer fertile and cannot have children. And therefore the world's kind of gone to shit. Such an interesting premise, something you wouldn't normally think about, but why do human beings persevere? So their kids will be okay. And the second you take that away, we're probably going to become bigger pieces of shit than we are. Yeah. So the, the whole premise of this movie is every country and continent has fallen except London and England. It stands. It stands. And, and there's a, the argument that it stands is that it has tight border security and illegal immigrants aren't allowed. And it's, this Dave again. This movie is so relevant as we hit into this right. election cycle this year with one particular candidate. So yeah, yeah. Um, Ted Cruz. Uh, but what <laughs> <laughs> the the thing that caught me the first time when you was watching this sort of happen is the way that media was portrayed in this scene. It was on the side of buildings. It was doing whatever, and it has a sci-fi element, but it felt. The sci-fi element of this, even like uh, you know, standing boards at, at newspaper shops and things like that, felt so real and how I could see this utilitarian tech being used in this sort of way. Like it's not flashy anymore. It's just needs to work. And like, I felt like the, the, the even the bullshit, it just, the, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling. The love that someone put into the most minute details of this tech that in the world is not made to be super eye popping or eye catching, yeah. like just lent itself to the believability of this universe that they were creating for us on the screen. And I really appreciate small, details oh, yeah. like that and it helps a million times and it helps even further when the first shocking thing of the film happens that because uh owen wilson's character uh oh sorry owen wilson clive owen <laughs> clive wow owen, yeah. owen wilson shows up you, know, you haven't you, seen the sequel uh what's funny is i, I completely went along with you i know you're second. like oh yeah owen wilson yeah. it's great um when clive owen leaves he leaves the coffee shop early because he doesn't want to watch i think the baby diego stuff and he, he takes his, his cream and sugar yeah. uh outside to put it in on a bench and then a bomb goes off in that coffee in shop. that coffee shop yeah. and you're like oh fuck like it's it's so good and you know the thing about you know like because there's the, there's been discussions uh i read an essay about like the notion of science fiction design, uh, we tend to think of science fiction future design as utopian. So in other words, it's always clean. It's well-maintained. It's kind of like what the world looked like if it was just freshly unwrapped is the way we kind of perceive um, science fiction utopias. And this is not a, or even a science fiction dystopia. Anytime, anytime we're looking at future uh, technology, we sort of think about it as a just unwrapped. What's great about this film is everything feels like it was unwrapped. Dirty. It feels like it was unwrapped 30 years ago, and this is the state it's in now. It's that color a computer from 1995 turns now. That yeah, sort of like brown, muted yellow. brown yellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, oxidized plastic. So, so you know, like, it, it go, we've said it four or five times now, but it goes without saying. If you are a filmmaker, you need to watch this movie, not just from a... Uh, a technical point of view, but just from a, a world building, not if, you, not if you're a, trying to tell a science fiction story, but any type of film, just the way in which 
the world feels lived in uh, is just masterfully done. I, 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 you know, like, I feel like, you know, like a lot of films budgets go into the post-production side of things where, you know, like you would spend a lot of money on those screens, for example, or you would spend a lot of money on um, a piece of technology like the the little game that the kid is playing at the art oh, table. Yeah. At his brother's house. But but what it feels like the money got spent on in this film, as it rightly should have, was the locations. Yeah. You know, like it feels like those look to the point where at the end of the film where Clive Owen is running barefoot through a war zone, I was kind of like Die Hard in it. Yeah, I, I, I actually that you just brought up a reference I was going to bring up later, which is I feel like this film is Die Hard with a baby, um, which, <laughs> which was that like I feel I, I was gen- there was a part of me watching this now generally going, oh my god, Clive Owens running barefoot through bricks and mortar and stuff like that, he's probably going to get hurt, you know, like and I was kind of like so the stakes were so high, it didn't feel like it didn't feel like movie, it felt like they'd found this location yeah. and just went fuck it, let's do it here. Um, so, you know, goes without saying, before we continue anywhere into the story or uh, any other elements, this is a masterclass in filmmaking. And now we will get into spoiler town for a movie. When was it released? 2006. 2006. It's a 10 year anniversary. 10 year anniversary of this movie. You've got. You've got uh, so you got no excuse. Yeah. I think 10 year. We shouldn't even have to give you a spoiler alert. <laughs> One of the things I love about this movie as well is the way in which the politics of the world are told in the background. Like, yes, anywhere you, any corner, I feel like if this film turned, if the camera moved in any direction, you would see a little piece of information which would, un, which would tell you about the state of the world uh, in very minor, in, sometimes in minor details and then sometimes in major details where you're seeing people being... Uh, locked up in cells uh, alongside the railway. Uh, it's just it's a just wonderfully done. And there's a really good um, uh, if anyone knows uh, Slavoj Zizek, uh, the um, Slovenian philosopher. He writes a. Uh, it's actually on the Blu-ray as well. He's got a little video essay where he talks about um, the reason he believes Children of Men is effective political political storytelling is because the politics of the film are told in the background details. It's not a film about politics. It's a film yep. that lives within its political. It's the framework. reason Mad Max works. Yeah. I think actually you're right. Yeah. It's, it's Mad Max is another really good example of where the, the world feels lived in mm-hmm. and is happening. And yeah. We're just embracing it. As yeah. It we're not, we're not learning about the politics between, uh, you know, the, the plateau and gas town and or, or gas, whatever, and bullet, yeah. whatever the fuck like, but like it, they're important and they're lived in. And it's it matters to the people, and you can tell basically with the world that they've built. So yeah. I, I think it, it when you can do that, like Children of Men does. I mean, you you're given that if you can pull that off, you can build. It's a solid foundation for greatness. I just I wish more movies today were like that. I feel like I feel like movies are written by committee. Not, not I, I don't know. Committee is the wrong word, but I feel like movies are written to get us from A to B without enjoying the time we spend in A to B. And I feel like this movie was, yeah. it was like, let's really be in the world. And when we get to B, that's what will, will happen. Um, so I, I just, I love that sense of world. And I just, I just wish more films were like this. Yeah. Um, so Clive Owen's character, um, what's the character's name? I can never remember. Theo. Theo. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, we follow him around a bit in the beginning through his sort of life. Uh, he uh, goes to see Michael Caine, his buddy who like grows weed in the woods uh, and visits him. Uh, he goes to work, you know, just a general sort of guy. And then you find out a little bit later that he used to be involved with Julianne Moore's character, who is the leader of a resistance movement. Uh, what exactly are they resisting to? They're resisting the in immigration laws. Yeah, immigration laws. So they call the fish yeah. um, and they're resisting this idea that the borders, you know, like in the in the decay of modern society, in modern English society, they've decided to like limit immigration, um, put them in camps, put them in camps and camps that look awfully like Guantanamo Bay. Sure. Um, and it run by the department of Homeland security, which is not a, which is not an entity that exists in Britain. But like, this is the interesting part. And I, this is the one sort of flaw I feel like in the, in the, in the logic of maybe not. I don't think it's a flaw in the logic of the movie. I think it's just a flaw in the logic of the fish in a weird way. The reason Britain is okay is because with the world gone to shit, they have crazy borders. Like, that's why, and I'm not saying it's right, yeah. but that's why 
uh, Clive Owen can go buy a cup of coffee still and like drive in a train and like, you know, just, you know, infrastructure still exists is because they're not being overrun. No, but the problem <laughs> is uh, I don't like that word overrun because it, uh, it kind of connotates uh, something feral or, uh, or, or insect like, and, and the reason, uh, the reason why it's problematic sure. in this film is that there's a, it's a detail that I noticed this time around. Okay. Was that there's a commercial playing on the bus and uh, it's a commercial that goes, this is my neighbor. They're my shopkeeper. They're this person. And then it comes up with, doesn't matter. They're illegal immigrants and they're not allowed in here. So what what the film was playing on the, what I think what the, the, the problem that the fish have is that they're not just stopping the people coming in at the border. Mm-hmm. They're also saying people who are in the United Kingdom who don't fit the, quote unquote mold of the United Kingdom should be taken out. Oh, I didn't get that. I thought they were just people like that had snuck in. Right. No, I think I think it's also it's it's the weird thing like uh how do you feel about we have to mention I always feel like uh this particular political candidate should be the man the person whose name should not be mentioned because Vermin every, Supreme, right? Yeah, yeah, because every time you mention him he probably masturbates by the by his headphones uh, and gains some sort of power. Do you think do you think he listens to the only podcast about movies? Yeah, I mean, we're the only one so it's, I mean, if he's into movies he probably does. We did do The Art of the Deal, the yeah, movie. Yeah, he probably heard that. Um, I, you know, like, it's that question of, like, okay, border security is one issue, but the other thing was the deportation of people who are already in the United States. And it's, you know, like, how do you feel, you know, like, not you personally, but like right. how this film is kind of like, you know, like, talking about how... That that idea of separation between us and them happens in this film. And it's like, of course, and obviously, Clive Owen is a person who's going to wander through the streets fairly safely, but a person who looks like me might not. I just never, and and I'm not saying that the movie didn't go that way. I'm saying I didn't see it that way. I I saw it as keeping immigrants out, right? Which in this world, in this weird sci-fi world, that this is sort of the last bastion of of quote humanity that like humanity that once was is the only place it still exists. I can see why they do that for the status quo that they're trying to protect. I never got the idea that they were hunting people that just looked different. I think they'd become a, a, they'd become increasingly paranoid, but I don't, there was never any sort of, um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, there is never any sort of like racial, uh, sort of like you look this way, so we need to put you in a in a cage. There was all different ethnicities throughout both sort of societal. Yeah, I think the question would be, you know, the question that comes up in that is is how do you distinguish between a person who's a different ethnicity who's here legally versus a person who's papers? A yeah, papers, and then uh, you know, like that creates this other culture then of like people who might have lived here all their life having to require papers where people who've been here all their life who are white and Clive Owen sure. don't have to show Fair papers. Fair enough. I, yeah, know, and, 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 and I just don't was, know how much it, it actually, if it said that one way or the other, I never saw it, but I could totally see it as a thing. Yeah. And there's that, com- and like I say, there's that commercial on the bus, which is that, you know, I thought it just it, meant like almost like the way illegal immigrants are in the like yeah uh, you know in well real I think life. I think the the commercial is an inverse of like the way in which that idea has been put to us before which is like you know you show a, per, a picture of an illegal and then you say this person's my neighbor or this person right. is, like lives they took our jobs yeah yeah but and then the commercial kind of flips it and says doesn't matter it, report illegal immigration sure. and it sits up this culture of like yeah, fear. reporting fear you know people who are not us quote unquote. Um, fear attracts the fearful she here. It's true. Um, so, you know, it actually, it actually leads to a, this is a weird topic and I think, and I think it'll, it'll come off wrong as soon as I say it. Oh, good. Those are my favorite. (laughs) But I think one of the things that makes Alfonso Cuaron an interesting filmmaker, particularly in a film like this is that he is not American. And I think it leads, you know, like, I think there's a, there is a, um, and this is, you know, like this is a film set in the UK. It stars British people. It's just mm-hmm. funded by the United States so, uh, or by a US studio, I'm presuming. Um, I love that this didn't take place in America. Yeah, it's really Because cool. to be honest, if this was real, yeah. America would be the first place to fucking go. <laughs> like, I could feel like the British are so fucking like, just like sort of like in their world. Yeah. Like, they'd be like, nope, <laughs> this is what we're doing. We're still having fucking tea, God damn it! Like, <laughs> Americans would just be fucking killing it'd each be, other. It'd be zombie land all over, like, yeah. straight away. I think what Alfonso Cuaron brings to this is an ethnographic point of view, which is that he looks at the cor- he looks at it like an outsider, and he looks at the little details that would not necessarily be important to someone who lived in that culture. You know, like I think 
It's easy, you know, like the thing that's interesting is that the camera travel, and he does this in, in Yutumama Tambian as well. Like the whole thing there is that the, the camera drifts past the story every now and again to show you a little piece of detail mm -hmm. that's happening in the background, like a car accident where someone died. And then the, the, and then the uh, narrator explains exactly how sure. that person got there. Um, and then drifts back towards the story. And I think I I don't know if that has to do with him being an outsider or not being American. I don't know. I think it does. I think it does. I don't I just don't want to say it's because he's he's a Mexican filmmaker. No, no, he, in English he, films. he brings a outlook and a point of view across that not everyone can bring. Yeah. And it's unique. I think it's unique to him. Um, 100%. Uh, you know, like it's even like in Gravity, for example, it's it's just in the peripheral. But a character is an Indian character who sings like this famous Bollywood song in the background. And like when it when my mother, heard, I showed Gravity to my mother recently and when she heard it, she like perked up. It was like, oh, it's my people. Aww. You know, like it's just that kind of little detail that um, that he brings to it. So I, I kind of I think that's like a quality, you know, and like the amount of the way in which he depicts basically the 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 third world zone the i think it's called bells hill in this uh bix hill in this film it's where the final war zone happens uh essex hill it's, no essex it's, it's, it said the word sex in it i do i think that. i thought it was bix hill maybe you just heard sex in no world. it has the word sex in it maybe you, maybe it was bix and you were just like man i'm really horny right now yeah <laughs> um the way in which he depicts that world and that culture you know like that world falling apart on itself is so detailed um, but it's detail that's all in the background. He does. He he manages to strike a really good balance between foreground and background action. Um, to the point, I think there's been a couple of really good essays about the way in which Children of Men um, treats its background characters. And then the other thing he does, uh, which is a distinction from the from the the book to the film, because this is an adaptation of a P.D. James uh, book, was that the book I believe uh, Theo was actually. Theo was a doctor in the book. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, Dr. Theo Farron, an Oxford Don. So I think he he probably had more agency in terms of like knowing and understanding how... Um, Bex Hill. Bex Hill. I, I must have had something else <laughs> in my you brain. You had something else in your brain. Bex Hill. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll take that. Um, so, you know, he, but in, in the book, he was a, he was a doctor. Uh, in the film, he's just an everyday, ordinary schmo. Just a guy. Uh, I don't think he has any particular skills in in of note other than at one point he was an activist. Yeah. Right, which brings us to the Julianne Moore character. Yeah. Um she grabs him on the street with her thugs from the the fish and uh you get this this sort of history between them and he he wants or, They sorry, had a child together. They had a child together who apparently died. Yeah. Uh and yeah. then and then uh they obviously drifted apart and uh she became the leader of this resistance and he just went about his life. Now she gets him because she knows that his brother is influential his in cousin. No, it's his brother. It's his cousin. Is it? Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. Family member. <laughs> yeah. Um knows is influential to get papers. Um uh for to move a person that she doesn't say who yet. And uh they for old time's sake and he basically says he'll do it. He goes to this cousin's house. And uh, eventually, uh, you know, the guy who's collecting all the art. You said the the line. What is the line? It's something along the lines it's of like, like uh, he, in, you walk in, you see the David is there. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think Theo says something to the lines of like, in a in hundred fucking years, everyone will be dead and there won't be anyone to see all this fucking art. Why do you keep doing it? And he, uh, I think it's Julian. Oh, yeah, the character. He's a government minister, the cousin. Yeah, uh, I, 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 it's easy. I just don't, I just try not to think about it. Yeah, I don't it, think about it. It's, it's that kind of like piss, you know, like if, if you knew that the society was ending, you know, the thing that's interesting is people still go to their jobs and people still kind of like go and do their, you know, like do whatever it is yeah. they're doing. It's just like, I just try not to think about it. It's a really, I, I don't know. It's a really cool little detail. So he gets these papers, but the problem mm -hmm. is... Uh, he only could score papers for two people. Like it, it would be a couple or a guests or, or, or yeah. not guests, uh, just like a pairing. Yeah. And, uh, wow. It, that's like kind of wraps him up in the entire thing. And then they try to convince him to go along with, with this woman who it, you find out is pregnant. pregnant. Um, now that's the sound I make when I hear people pregnant. pregnant. No, that makes sense. Uh, okay. Um, now, now the the next part that, that got me, and I'm trying to remember when this is, um, Julian Moore was taking him back to the base. 
They were they were basically driving uh, Key, the girl. Had uh, we met Key already? Yeah, we'd met. They basically just. But you she, never knew that she was pregnant. No, yet no. At this he point. just gets into a car with her, so she's sitting down. Yep. And this is this like filmmakers again watch this scene over and over again because of the single take inside this car. Sure. Um, if you've ever watched how they made this scene, it's amazing. Yeah. Like like the car is this extended car where they built a ramp on top, and the camera can move in and out of the car. It's oh, um. And and then they're sieged upon by uh, a group of resistance fighters or something like that. Not quite sure at the point. Well, we learn later. I know on. we learn later what they are, but at that point, you're not sure. You see a car on fire rolling down a hill in the woods, ready to block the road. Yeah, and it's all told from inside this car. So and then bad. just like hordes of people coming down and attacking the car. Yeah. Um, killing Julianne Moore. Yeah, very shockingly. After yeah. a sort of like another one of those human moments of them, so like a skill they could do with a ping pong ball, like spitting it back into each other's oh, mouth. See, that's a this is such a great detail. It's such a weird. And that's a bullshit thing that like I would do with someone that I was close with at college. Like, oh, only we can do this. Like, yeah. so again, you get that feeling of like these are real people with histories and lives, and they speak to each other and interact in a natural way. Yeah. Um. And then it it has that thing which is like the stakes. You realize the stakes of the story are so high when, like, a character you've kind of been attached to and a name that you've been, you know, like, really enjoying just gets killed. Game of Thrones on the floor. Yeah, yeah, just down. Uh, and then they get away after some heroic door smashing onto motorcycles, yeah. uh, which looks brutal. Uh, and they get back to their, like, refugee camp. Oh, oh, no, oh. No, no, they find, they find a farm that's a safe haven. The safe haven. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's the camp. That's the... Oh, no, sorry, a, I, I'm sorry. I used, I used refugee camp wrong. The 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 Bessex, or Bexhill thing is the refugee camp. This is the resistance's sort of one they, of their bases. They have a farm, yeah. Uh, also, uh, Ch- Ch- I can never pronounce his name, Shotwell but I love it. Chatwell Ifferger. Chatwell Ifferger? Yeah, I I know I'm, I'm butchering it, but... Ejofer, yeah. or whatever. Uh, he is wonderful. I have loved him since Serenity and I've never seen him in something that I don't like. So I forgot he was in this and I was like, yes, he's so good. Uh, the movie I first saw him in was Melinda and Melinda, the Woody Allen film. Okay. Uh, where he plays a violinist or a cellist or something like that. He's and great. He's so good. He, oh, he's so good. Yeah. We get back to this farm they clean up whatever. They're going to vote on a new leader. Uh, and they're going to say they're going to leave in the morning with the girl. Someone will uh, escort the girl as a pairing. Did you? Or, Okay, yeah. Report key or support or ring key to where she needs to go. But Clive Owen, mm. not Owen Wilson, um, overhears that, in fact, the raid that happened to them at the car was actually Ill- orchestrated by the very same people they're staying with. And because he sees like the, the motorcyclist ride up all beat up. Do you know who the motorcyclist is? A dreadlock guy? Yeah. I don't know. Charlie Hunnam. Okay. Uh, Sons of Anarchy. Uh, I don't I've watched her. Oh, okay. All right. He's got but what? That oh, he was also my mind. Pacific Rim as well. Was he? Yeah. Anyway, okay. continue. Um, so Clive Owen takes it upon himself being like, oh, shit. So he, uh, Key, and who's the, the sort of uh, midwife-ish? The, the midwife. I forget her name. But 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 this is the point at which Clive Owen realizes she's pregnant. And all of a sudden, this is... No, he realized she's pregnant before, and they were in the bar, and they all... Yeah. Yeah. And this is why... The, this is why he thinks it's so important to actually go against this and try to escape. Yeah. Well, he realizes that... Well, also they threaten his life without them. You know, he he overhears a conversation when they said they're going to and kill they're going to use the baby as like a political thing as opposed to actually like getting it to this tomorrow. Oh, the idea is that to get the papers. They're trying to get Key, this pregnant woman, to the Tomorrow Project. Yeah, the Tomorrow, the Human Genome, the Human, project. the Human Project, or yeah. whatever it's called, uh, which is a boat and it's a super secretive organization that like you have to get talk through like mirrors. It's like people and people and people. Like it's a big game of telephone to get a hold of them. Yeah. Uh, so they've arranged Key to be brought there, but yeah. the the thing is they're actually never going to Julian. Moore's character wanted to do that, but the um, Chitwell Ifager, his character did not. He wants to use the baby as a political uh, maneuvering to, chip to 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 bring on the uprising. Yes, um, and and killing Julianne Moore's character is important in that because she is the leader of the fishes. Yep. Um, so killing her will begin the uprising, so to speak. Yes. Um, yeah, and then and then again, this is amazing scene where he uh, uh, Clive Owen has to escape. Uh, the farm and he fucks like, up all the other cars except he, for the one he takes which I love yeah and then he you know like and he's barefoot as well so he's running around barefoot in this scene like running through the mud trying to get and the car won't start yeah they have to like jump start it they have to jump start or it or kick start it and uh, and and you know and then like the problem the the stakes here are going to get even more complicated because nobody wants to shoot guns because nobody wants to injure the baby yep 
Um, and so like, there's a great scene where uh, Patrick, the, the Charlie Hunnam actor, the guy with the dreadlocks, runs up and, he, and he's got his gun pointed directly at Clive Owen and, and he has to yell shot. back, got I've got a clear shot. shot, do I have permission and, to shoot? And then he gets hit with the door again. <laughs> again. I, I love it. it. Yeah, yeah, it was so good. Uh, uh, and then they eventually they eventually get away after this beautiful scene of just like, it's just <laughs> a really impressive scene, again, it, one it, of I, many. I think it's a single take as well. Yeah. What's cool about it is a single take is it starts in darkness and it eventually becomes daytime. So it like, it's it's happening like at the, right. at the at the you know early dawn hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then they get away and they start driving. Now they, they the only place they know where to go is Michael Caine's house, Jasper's house. Yep. Yeah. So they go there, um, and uh, they set up there. They set up shop there for a bit, but then they're tracked down. Yeah, I'm not sure how they got tracked down, but they it, it isn't quite explained. But yeah. Uh, uh, by the resistance people, yeah, the same people they just escaped from, and they get away. Uh, key, oh, uh, uh, Clive Owen and uh, the 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 midwife. Um, but sadly, Jasper decides to stay back, and uh, after telling the resistance to pull his finger multiple times, a joke that has sort of gone through the entire thing, he gets gunned down, which is very sad. Uh, but Clive Owen now has nowhere else to go but move forward. Uh, before Jasper's what? death. Yeah, Jasper had arranged for them uh, because Jasper is growing pot in his uh, in his house in his little secret house that he sells to one of the uh, guards at a uh, Bix Hill. Yep, um, and he's arranged for that guard um, played by Peter Mullen. Uh, who's Sid. A, yeah, Sid. Peter Mullen's a really good director as well. By the way. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, really terrific director. He made a, he made a film called My Name Is Joe <laughs> and uh, the Magdalene Sisters. Um, uh, very good actor as well, obviously. Yeah. Um, he'd made a deal. Uh, Jasper had made a deal with Peter Mullen to, uh, with Sid to take them into Bix Hill um, and allow them to travel to to get a boat from the Human Project to go get to the boat that they're yeah. trying to meet. Yeah, because the 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 refugee camp was against the water. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, and and then once they so so then you go through the the horrors of the essentially the internment camps where refugees are being taken which uh, they use a very direct metaf- uh, a direct image from Guantanamo Bay uh you know do you remember when uh, Guantan- when all the photographs of like what uh, prisoner torture yeah, was yeah. happening in Guantanamo yep. Bay uh there was a pr- photo of a, a prisoner with a sack on his head when holding his hands out um that's directly in the background you see yep. that character yep. um in the scene which is again just this amazing little bit of detail building. And it's, it's literally blinking. You'll miss it, but it's, yeah. Um, and so, you know, to your point where, you know, where you're talking about, uh, Britain has secured its borders. This is what securing its borders means to Britain, uh, which is very inhumane, very torturous. Um, and, uh, so Clive Owen and key are separated from the midwife. They're taken into Bix Hill uh, where they find refuge for a night. Uh, well, before before that even happens, they're on that bus, and the reason the midwife gets taken away is because she starts acting a little bit crazy because the key has gone into labor on the internment camp bus. Yeah. And in order to distract the dog from freaking out from the smell of the water breaking and whatever, uh, Clive Owen lies and says, oh, she peed herself, yeah. saying the midwife did, but the midwife gets pushed out of the bus because she's acting crazy, and then, like, they get yeah. to keep moving. So that's how we lose her. She, a fate. Who the hell knows what happens to her? Well, it's all, I mean, it's all like, yeah, it's, it's that question of like, we're okay with, uh, with refugees being deported until the wrong person gets deported. You know what I mean? And that's what the case is there. She's, she's not, uh, a refugee or an illegal according to this, but she's gets thrown into that, into that camp. I thought she was because she was a resistance fighter. She's a resistance fighter, but she's not an illegal immigrant. She's English, you know, like that's the thing. She gets thrown in there. No one's going to believe her Mm -hmm. when she's in there. So I presume she's going to meet a horrible end or a horrible fate. Well, that's the thing I didn't quite understand. This is something that, this is one of my only problems with this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why. It's, this world is very anti-immigrant, right? Yeah. Okay. Why have an immigration camp? Why not just hold people at the board? Like, don't you're not allowed to come in. Why gather people? Why not just keep kicking people out? Well, I think the process of kicking people out is complex. And it's I guess. Like, it's like, and you need a... But this seemed like a huge, this is almost like a city. Yeah, I think that's the area in which they take, you know, like once you've been arrested, like imagine, okay, imagine you get a thousand refugees. Are sure. you going to put each of them on a single, on a plane back to their country, to this country, to this country, to this country? No, you, you bus them. You, I mean, I guess in this world, I would say you keep busing them to a border and you kick them off. And that's what this area is, I think. This is, is that, sort of the border? Well, this is, I think Bix Hill is actually kind of a prison. 
Um, right, which I didn't. That's why I didn't understand. Like, why are we imprisoning all these people as opposed to just uh, uh, deporting them? Because where do you deport them to? Wherever I, you know, it's it. I Again, mean, I don't know. I, I, that was just one thing that I was kind of a little bit like, okay, they're making this into like a prison state, and they're putting all these people in a prison. But why? Well, you know, the thing is that it reminded me of is Son of Saul. Uh, it reminded me of the process that happens in Son of Saul, where you know, like the, need- the process takes at the place of the sort of the human element of it. It's like, nope, this is how we do it. This is how we deal with it. This is the rules. Let's fucking go. Yeah, yep. exactly. It doesn't even make you know. It doesn't right, necessarily make sense to us, but it, you know, that's the process of it. Um, yeah. So she, they go in there, and then they have that um, kind of amazing scene where Key gives birth. And what's amazing for a film that just sits up very briefly that the cho- there is no children in the world. And then there's a CGI baby, and it is a CGI baby. It's still a powerfully evocative image. Right? I was gonna say best CGI baby I've ever seen. Yeah, and it's you know what? It's funny because it's 2016. I know. now, and 2006. It's still the CGI is a little ropey. I don't even think it is. I honestly, I, for the world and the way they lit it, like they lit against, they lit it for its strengths. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Which is the smart thing to do. Yeah. Uh, I was when I saw it. It took me a second. I was like, the only reason I really was like, oh, CGI baby, because it's a brand new out of the fucking womb baby yeah. and you can't really film. It's I mean, a, they show an amazing, you see it coming out of the womb. Uh, it, it, it was really good. It's it's great. And you know what's funny about it is like, um, if you watch the making of, you'll see that the, you'll see the, um, the doll baby that they used as the, the thing that they sure. replaced. Um, have you seen American Sniper? Oh God! Yes. Do you remember the baby in American Sniper? It was like weird. They're having this conversation. You're clearly holding a doll. I'm like, how were they able to do this in 2006? Well, th- do you know why they were holding a doll? Do you know why? It was. I know why. Oh, why? Whoa. It's because so they had they had a baby booked. Yeah. And then that baby dropped out, and then yeah. they had the backup baby booked, and then that baby got sick. Yeah. And so they literally had all the actors, all the crew, all everything, and they were running out of money at that point, and they're just like, no, no, like we just you use this doll. Like that's literally it. It's like every possible contingency for having an actual Including baby on replacing set. Replacing the doll with the CG. I guess they didn't have the money. Like that's that's the weirdest thing. I know. Yeah. I, but like that's the story of it. it's like that's production. Like no matter what you do, and I've been in a situation yeah. or two like this where it's like I've planned for everything. Yeah. Everything is falling apart, and yeah. it's like fuck. Now we got to use a doll. Like, but for such it's weird. I know it's for such hey, a large scale movie. I know. You know. But and that was before everyone knew that movie was going to be gospel. Yeah. In the box office. Yeah, and it's. I guess it's weird because it, yeah, uh, it just seems like that it takes you, no, you like 100%. it just takes you out of that scene. But this, a beautiful CG baby, keeps you in the scene. Keeps you in the scene. It's amazing. Uh, Key gives birth. Uh, then, here's the scene we've been talking about. The scene. Uh, the scene we've been talking about. The uprising begins. Begins. And, and um, Theo, Key, the baby need to get to the water. Um, and the, a lot of things are happening in this scene. Mm-hmm. Sid comes back because he wants to, he's told he wants to escort them out, but then he saw on the news that, uh, they Julian, were wanted. Yeah. That they were wanted. And he's like, well, maybe there's some reward that can be then had. Then he sees the baby and he thinks bigger reward. Yeah. And then the fishes come back. The Chitwell Effiger character, mm-hmm. I'm, oh, I'm saying his name so badly, um, comes back and they want to grab the baby for the resistance. So, um, and plus the military are descending upon Bix Hill, to kind of just blow Quell it, to it smith- yeah. yeah, to blow it to smithereens. So you got all these factors going in, which is kind of like a complicated thing. And what does Alfonso Cuaron decide to do? Follow Clive Owen everywhere and, he goes and do it in a single take. Is it actually a single take, or did they match some takes together? Uh, I mean, I, think, I I don't. They they in other scenes they definitely match takes together. Um, I don't know if this is one of them. It might very well be. But it it certainly gives But it's flawless. I mean, it looks it looks like one take and it's so beautiful that you don't even realize it until like two thirds of the way through and you're like, and it's wow. So I mean, yeah, it, I mean there must be some trickery because it's so well orchestrated. Yeah. You know, like we're looking up just it's it's that amazing thing, which is like how we are so well orientated in this scene, given how much is going Chaos. on. Chaos. Given how much the camera is shaking, we still know exactly what's going on in every part of the scene. By it's, only following one person. By following one person. And that's insane. Uh, and, and, and just how well choreographed, like, you know, when characters pop back up, we, we're given enough time to see who they are and what their relationship is to what's sure. going on. It's so, uh, like, if the, the masterclass part of this film is just, it, it's not just this part, but this is, and this is a, this is an apex of emotion and technical direction. Yeah. And can, yeah, tech, the, the dude, 
ADs and, and TD. Uh, holy shit. Yeah, it's it's masterful. Uh, if I can just use that word one more time. I mean, you just, I mean, the, the level of technical prowess to pull that shit off and the amount of like teamwork is mind boggling. Yeah. And I still, I mean, I'm sure there have been films recently that have done similarly complex things, but sure, but not to the same grand effect and, 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 and product because it has one of the most beautiful emotional AP, like pinnacles of the scene which is when the baby cries and suddenly people who are in the midst of, and it's, it does this beautiful thing with sound, which is that the baby's cries are initially drowned out by the sound of warfare. Baby bazooka. And then eventually. That was his name. Yeah, that was his name. At one point. I was just getting used to Froley. I know, Froley. <laughs> but then the baby's cries become louder and louder and people stop fighting and they start hearing the cry. And, I, you know, as a new parent, again, it's this weird thing, but like that, cry is so unique and hearing a baby cry is so powerful and the metaphor here is that the the when when people stop hearing the voices of children the world turns to shit yeah and suddenly in amongst the the worst shit possible we hear a child cry and it stops people are weeping it stops everything the people that are it's just living in this tenement building that they've mm -hmm. climbed up sort of are weeping and reaching out for the baby the the freedom fighters mm -hmm. that are that are or, or resistance or whatever they were shooting down stops looks at the baby the military who is super grouped at the base of this building yeah. just stops looking at the baby now something that that this did amazingly because a lot of times when moments like this happen i am always like come on like really, but you never get that moment. And the second before you might even start feeling that way. Yeah. Once they're out of the building and sort of walking through the military people, like maybe like 30 yards away from the entrance of the building, someone fires a shot yeah. back at the military or it back at the continues. resistance and it just continues and they just completely ignore the fact that, you know, a baby has just come like, through. and that to me was so fucking perfect. Like oh, so good. as, as a, as a, as a uh, narrative tool, as an allegory, as a thing just to move the plot forward. Like it worked on every fucking level. Uh, and yeah, then they find a gypsy woman that they stayed with before she gets them a boat. Yeah. And they, uh, sail off into the ocean. And then you find out that when they're on the water with the baby and key and, and, uh, Clive Owen that Clive Owen has been shot, which I love that sort of reveal. And, uh, he basically dies. Yeah. Uh, and not before she reveals that she's going to name him, name the baby girl, Dylan, which was the name of his son. Yes. Um, which is beautiful. And then once he's dead, she sees a boat and the boat says tomorrow on it. And you are left with it again. It's not like a cliffhanger ending, but it's not the most complete. And because it's the entire thing. You're not sure if the tomorrow project is real. Yeah, and yeah. then the way, th the way that this movie has conditioned you is you, while it's not like, hello, we're the tomorrow project. We're here to save you. Like yeah. that's what's going to happen. But also there's an interesting thing that we see right before that as well, which is that they're on the water and we see jets fly overhead and, and bomb the shit out of Bix Hill. And it's like, you know, the irony of that is so beautiful because it's like, the whole reason this culture is the this society is falling apart is because there's no new babies, and right. So let's kill a bunch of people. We'll kill. We'll, and and the thing is, is that had Clive Owen and Key not made it out of there, the first new baby in existence would have been killed without much thought. Um, and you know, like, and it's and the reason that would have happened is because it's something that the the fish mentioned as well, and something that Julianne Moore's character mentioned. I, I think. No, Julianne Moore's character doesn't comment on this because she doesn't, the baby hasn't been revealed to right. her. Right. But that the first new baby in um, in London is an immigrant's baby. And and that, you know, like... That's why Clive Owen, even in the beginning, when he's first the fish is saying, he's like, just announce it. Like, yeah. what are you doing? Like, just tell people. Yeah. And they come back and you'd be like, they'd take that baby and say it's the child of a citizen instantly. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's kind of, a again, a powerful tool to remind you about why that division of between refugee and citizen is so tenuous, you know, like it's so tenuous and it's so like based upon, it's based upon imaginary borders. You know, it's based upon borders that are created, um, you know, until, until they don't work anymore. You sure. know, like, like California was part of Mexico until it wasn't right. You know, like, um, and then all of a sudden Mexicans are illegal to California, you know, like, and I think there's another state that's like that as well. Um, Texas. Yeah, part of Texas. Texas, Texas, Texas. Yeah, until a line is drawn, you know, like, it, it, you know, suddenly a whole... Like, I'm not going to go out in line and say that borders shouldn't exist for countries. 
No, I, d- I think there's a reason borders. Ex- I also think they're a huge excuse for a lot of bullshit. Yeah. I think- but, but I, you know, it's, it's look, nothing. The only reason uh, anything is named anything or called anything is because we give it that, like that importance, you know, like, well, yeah, but it, it, there's a, there's a, uh, <laughs> I know we're the only podcast about movies, so this is fine. But there's a philosophy podcast I listen to called the unmute podcast with Maisha cherry. Ooh. And uh, she has an episode in there called uh, about immigration, um, which is really interesting because it goes into the history of uh, how, immigration was set up in America. It just is one example from a historian's point of view. Uh, and the way in which board, like basically in the, the premise of immigration in America was based on, and uh, up until 1946 uh-huh. was based on the premise of the white man. Uh, you right. could, only white men could immigrate to America. Um, and then there were certain boundaries. about. So, so certainly no Africans could, uh, could immigrate legally you. to America. Uh, and then that boundary was changed when, Asians wanted to immigrate to America and they needed to bring Asians to America for, um, for labor purposes. Right. So it's, it's like, I'm gonna the, have to give that a listen. I got into an immigration discussion, uh, based on obviously the goings on these days with uh, a coworker. And I realized they had brought up about like, they had, there was a lot of sort of bluster about like, uh, you know, immigration works like this. And I was like, honestly, I don't think either of us have done the research to figure out exactly how immigration works. So I'm going to stop this argument because I don't think we're right anywhere. And, uh, no, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. It's the unmute podcast, uh, with Maisha Cherry and the shout talk- out talks to uh, Jose Jorge Mendoza about immigration. It's really fascinating. Okay, cool. It'll give you an entirely different perspective on the immigration debate. Awesome. Um, so, and I think that's, you know, ultimately that's, while the film is talking about, you know, like it's weird because the fertility discussion and the idea of this, po- this future where babies can't be born anymore is, is swiveled on its head into an immigration and refugee film. Oh, yeah, no, that's just the catalyst. That's yeah. just the, the baby thing is is just so we can have a world in this story that is on the brink of falling apart. And that's when sort of the worst of people can can come out. Yeah. And it's and and it's to give them the break. But know. it's rendered so well. Yeah. It's rendered so like. Yeah. Anyway, we're, we are running a little long on the tooth on this bit. So um, Shahir, I guess final thoughts on Children of Men. I've, so I, I started with saying like the story, uh, the, the initial time I'd seen, you know, the first time I saw it, I felt a little dissatisfied with the story. And I, and I always pointed the, to this film as a case study of where the filmmaking prowess was better than the actual story being told. Sure. That said, having watched it four times now, and yeah. I would, I, I, it's a film I will revisit many, many times. Yeah. Um, the more I watch it, the more details I absorb, the more I kind of see how it's not necessarily in the immediate storytelling that the story is being told, but it's in the background of the story. It's in the details that are, it's almost in the art direction that tells us another part of the story. Um, and it still, it still doesn't quite hold up as emotionally rich to me as Yitumama Tambian does, but it, I look as far as big budget action, science fiction movies, I think this is, one of the best, and I wish more movies were like this. And I wish I'm glad, I'm really glad that Alfonso Cuaron doesn't make Marvel movies. But yeah. I wish there were filmmakers of his caliber making them. Give it time. And I think there's some of the of his caliber, just not not this sort of technical mastery of the entire process yet. Of his caliber, really? I I think in his own in his own right, Joss Whedon, in my opinion, I'm, I mean that's just how I see it. He'd be the closest. Um, But regardless, um, I think that, yeah, I mean, you've heard us for this last hour. It's a fucking amazing movie. And if you want to break it down to the point where, like, if you're someone with more of Shahir's kind of viewpoint on film uh, and you want to try to get someone to try to watch sort of more your style of movie and they haven't seen this film, this is the perfect gateway. Because what I would call this is sort of and this is not an action movie by any terms of the imagination, but there's a ton of action. So it's almost like this weird combination of like a thinking man's action movie in a very weird way. I would never like classify it as just like, Oh yeah, that fucking action flick children to men. But like, God damn, <laughs> like some shit happens here yeah. and you can easily, it, it has this amazing quality where you're invested in the set pieces. Obviously we've talked about them, but also the human moments and the story behind them have so much weight 
that if you have a goddamn soul, you'll be able to see it. If you if you don't weep during that baby scene in the war zone, I mean, I didn't weep, but I, I felt emotion. Yeah, well, okay, fine. Um, but when you have uh, no soul, is what I was gonna say. But uh, well, I mean, I have I have half a soul. Do you have to bring up half a soul every time? No, I think this is a great sort of start point. If you're if you're looking to dig more into film, you I'm sorry, you want to f- bring a friend or a loved one into digging more into film. I think Children of Men is a great place to start if they're just used to sort of the popcorn flick. And it's sad that it didn't do that well. I know, but but I mean, everyone in in circles of filmmaking and TV and and, and film like we know about it. Like it's it's there. Yeah, uh, I, I guess I wish the greater population. A hundred percent. Yeah. Anyway, this has been the only podcast about children of men. Uh, <laughs> Shahir, where can people find you when we're not given 10 year anniversary reviews for loving fans who we really appreciate? Thank you, Dave Rowe. Uh, my, uh, you can find my work at my website at uh, www.shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D. You can always write into us with your requests for movies or uh, things we've talked about, uh, your opinions. Uh, are we right? Are we wrong? Let us know. Uh, at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at onlymoviepod. Also, check in on our Facebook page, which is becoming quite a, a, a place for lively debate. A hotbed of activity. Yeah. Uh, you can find me at M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com for my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four P-R-E-Z on Instagram and Emperor MSK on the Twitter box. Um, yeah, and write us in. Again, if you tell us a movie you want us to see, maybe you'll get your own special uh, midweek treat uh, <laughs> from us and it won't be poison. Uh, no guarantees anyway uh, guys thank you so much for listening to this bonus thing thank you so much for suggesting uh, we do this yeah we'll see you next time (laughs) 